Love is in the air today on the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. How do you find it? How do you keep it? And what do you do when it's lost? We have the experts here to help us out. There are tons of dating apps out there, but are they helping people make real love connections? Talia Goldstein, CEO and founder of the matchmaking service Three Day Rule says, not really. What people are doing is they are swiping on what they want, not what they need. I'm Liberty Vittert, and today on the podcast, my co-host Shally Meg and I will dig into how dating apps help and hinder your search for love and the secret sauce to making your profile the most desirable. Liesl Sharabi, Director of Relationships and Technology Lab at Arizona State University, joins us to talk about this and more, which can also be found in her Harvard Data Science Review article, Finding Love on a First Data, Matching Algorithms in Online Dating. And Talia Goldstein tells us about the benefits of working with a real live matchmaker to find your one true love. To get going, I feel like I have to ask this question because Valentine's Day, but it, it's sort of one of those evergreen questions that I think stands the test of time, but it's really for both of you. Um, you know, algorithms in dating apps, and I think, Liesl, you said this in your article, is ostensibly to find the secret to romantic compatibility. And so I think my first question is, can algorithms do this and can matchmaking do this? You know, can romantic compatibility truly be quantified in a way that both algorithms and matchmaking are able to do them? This is an excellent question, and I think it depends on what kind of outcome you're hoping for. If you're hoping to be introduced with somebody who you might have a good first date with, I could see an algorithm being able to accomplish that because it's essentially being used to narrow down the dating pool and help you find somebody who you might get along with, who you have something in common with. Where it gets more complicated is when you're trying to match people for long-term compatibility, when you're trying to use an algorithm to essentially figure out who's going to be right for another person, you know, 10 years from now. Because in relationship science, I mean, that's a question that we haven't entirely answered yet. So it's kind of interesting to see if math can be used to figure out something that scientists for a long time have kind of struggled with. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think algorithms are helpful in putting you in front of people that you wouldn't otherwise have met. But I think a big problem with dating apps and algorithms is that it's really up to you to self-select. So what we're doing is usually we're just swiping on what is familiar to us. And familiar is not always what's best. So I think a lot of times we're just missing opportunities. We're swiping right past our soulmates because we're too rigid in our thinking. It was something I saw on um, the Three Day Rules Instagram, and it was like a hot take that you don't necessarily have to have the same hobbies as the person that you are with. And I think it, it makes sense in an algorithm that you say, oh, well, I like sports or I like whatever, and then those are the people you tend to go towards, whereas maybe that's not the case um, long term. Right. I think a lot of the filters and what you see online those aren't really what's going to matter in 20 years. So whether it's their hobbies or their age or height or income level, 
we are told that, that those are the characteristics that are going to matter. And so we need to filter for those when actually that really isn't going to make a difference in 20 years. It's more your core values and your long-term goals. So we are marketing ourselves online, but that's not actually determining compatibility. It's just, you know, we end up swiping on what we are interested in and usually what's familiar, as I mentioned before. So now each of us, you know, have our own ways of determining what's compatible and not compatible. But for the algorithm, right, the algorithm had to have some metric and that also had to be measurable, quantifiable. What are the common metrics being used for these algorithm? And are they, are they ideal? What would be your ideal kind of a metric for these algorithm to implement? So I can tell you that on dating apps like Tinder, one thing that they're looking at is how desirable you are. So every time somebody swipes right on you, which means that they are indicating that they like you or they swipe left, indicating that they pass and they want to be shown somebody new, they're effectively giving you a rating of desirability. And in addition to looking at who's swiping on you, they're also looking at the individuals behind the swipe. So they want to know how desirable those people are. And they're using that as a way to quantify your desirability as a partner to try to figure out who to match you with. So when you have somebody who's really desirable swiping right on you, that kind of like boosts your score. It indicates that you might be a little bit better of a candidate. So it's kind of interesting how they do that. And I know with Tinder specifically, they claim to have switched up their algorithm recently because there was a bit of backlash a few years ago when people found out that they were being rated on desirability. It didn't sit well with a lot of people, but you have to imagine that the process still works kind of similarly. So um, that's one way that they're doing it is just by looking at how people engage with your profile. And then they're essentially trying to put you in in groups with people who are similarly desirable. I mean, to follow up on that same concept with you, Talia, you all are an exclusive matchmaking. You know, it's not the apps. But at the same time, you have an enormous database. I mean, you, you must use data. I mean, it's kind of cool. You take this matchmaking, which is as old as time itself, it must be, but mixing it together with enormous amounts of data. What metrics do you use? Well, it's true. We have so much more information than they do online. Online, perhaps they can tell if you've gone on a date, but that's it. We have so much information. We have all about your history and your parents' marriage and your relationship past. We have who you are going on the date with and what the feedback is after the date and how many dates you're going on. So we have so much more information but success really is something different to everyone who comes to us. So for some, that means marriage and kids. And for others, they're fresh out of a divorce and they're looking to get back out there. Some people come to us with little dating experience. So success is walking away a more confident dater. So we just take what they are looking for and do our best to help them achieve success by the end. You know, for Lisa, like, how have algorithms around online dating changed from the days of a match or eHarmony, which I know are still around, but that's what I think of as the original dating apps? I mean, it's actually really interesting to look at how the matching process has changed on some of these platforms. Because when you think of the original online dating sites like OkCupid and eHarmony, they used to really rely strongly on self-report data. So you would fill out these really long questionnaires with information about yourself and what you were looking for in a partner. And then, you know, for eHarmony, I think at one point they had over 400 questions that you had to sit down and answer before you could actually create an account. 
And then based on that information, they would figure out who you're compatible with and you'd see like a number or a percentage in somebody's profile letting you know what the algorithm thought about the match. Now, fast forward, just in the past 10 years, we've seen a lot more dating apps popping up and people aren't going to sit down and spend 30 minutes answering questions to create a Tinder account. So they needed something different, a quicker sign up process and a way to infer this information that they used to have to ask people for. So one thing that a lot of dating apps are doing now for matchmaking is using collaborative filtering algorithms. So with collaborative filtering, it's essentially um, trying to identify people who have similar tastes and partners with the assumption being that if you were interested in the same types of people in the past, you're also going to like the same people in the future. And if you've ever watched Netflix, you know how collaborative filtering works because it's the same kind of technology. It's how Netflix knows what shows or um, movies you might want to watch without you having to sit down and actually tell it what your taste is. So it's based on people who have similar viewing habits as you. So when you look at the history, we've gone from asking people to self-report all of this information, which they're often not very good at self-reporting. Like people often don't know what they want in a partner. They think they do, and then they get it and they can't understand why suddenly this person isn't at all what they expected them to be. Um, and so collaborative filtering, it's just a different way of gathering data that's based more on behavior and less on self-report. Which I think is problematic because what people are doing is they are swiping on what they want, not what they need. And then it just continues to feed them people that they want, but not what they need. And so through matchmaking, we have so much more information. And part of our job is to help them step outside of their comfort zone. Most of our couples that end up in a long-term relationship end up marrying someone outside of their original criteria. And it takes a journey for us to get them there. It's a pretty iterative process where we start with what they're looking for. And then after every date, we tweak a little bit until we get to the end. And many of our success stories told us that they would have swiped right past the person that they ended up marrying. And we have, I mean, just one example, we had this client who she was the client and they got married. We matched them. And after he admitted to her that he swiped past her on Bumble. No way. Yes. And what he said was he saw that she was a professor and he decided, made the assumption that she was not right for him. But then later we sent him a dynamic bio about her and her interest. And he was very excited to meet her. They met, hit it off, and they're now married with a kid. But people are making so many assumptions online and really missing out based on their biases. Well, I didn't realize being a professor is not popular. Yeah, come on. <laughs> well, hey. the here. Come on, you know, just uh, great. Diesel, it's not looking good here for either one of us. <laughs> but, but it has this algorithm kind of a culture now that we talk about in the broad data science community, you talk about fairness of the algorithm, you know, trying to reduce the bias, so on and so forth. But in this domain in terms of the online dating, has the existence of these algorithms actually have changed people's behavior, both in terms of how to present themselves, in terms of what they want? I mean, can you speak broadly to that issue? I mean, I have one short thing to say, and then I'll pass it on to Liesl. I think it skewed their perception of who they can get. So sometimes people will come to us and say, but I'm getting all these hot guys on Bumble. 
why aren't you presenting me with a hot guy like this? And I say, well, are you in a relationship with one of those guys? Did it end up working out? So sometimes people are swiping right. And then you have this idea that you can get a 10 when actually you really should be with a seven. So I think it's sort of skewed who we can and cannot get based on, you know, who's swiping. Yeah, I clearly always think I should be with a 10, obviously. You should. Obviously. I love it. Thank you, least. Talia. Thank you. I'll actually, just to add to what you said, there's research that would support this idea that, especially in online dating, we tend to be very aspirational in terms of who we pursue because it's so much easier. Like if you were to approach somebody at a bar at a party, it's really uncomfortable to be rejected. So you might not shoot for a 10 if you don't think you're at that level. But on a dating site, it's so easy to just send somebody a message. So it kind of eliminates some of the risk. So you see people who are reaching out to others who would typically maybe be a little out of their league. And then, yeah, they don't end up with anything to show for it because they don't get messages back. They don't get dates. And so a lot of these platforms are using algorithms to try to correct for that and to show you people that are attractive to you, but who are also attainable. Like that's key because otherwise people are just getting rejected right and left and nobody wants to be on a platform like that. Some of the best guys I know have the worst profiles. So swipe on the ones that don't look like the charmers. Yeah. So maybe maybe people, maybe the best advice here is that you should swipe on people that are like an eight or something. Yes. Like a little bit less. Is that, how, is that our advice here? Are an eight. Yes. I would say if you're not getting messaged back, I would start to reassess who you're swiping on. Yeah. These would just talk about rejection that uh, remind me what you wrote in the article, which I think is really interesting. You point out the difference between the usual recommendation system for a product. A product cannot say, I don't like that person, don't recommend me to this person. But you know, in, in the online dating, obviously there is this reciprocal relationship. So my question to you is really how the how do these algorithms deal with that issue? Like what are the ways of dealing with that issue that is different from the regular recommendation system? Yeah, so I think a lot of what's happening in online dating is they're essentially, we talked about matching people with others who are in their league, and I think that they're very much paying attention to that, paying attention to not just what you want, but also what you can get. Um, so it's not enough to just ask for somebody's preferences in a partner, because they'll tell you they want the perfect person. But it's also this question of, is that person going to reciprocate your interest? Is this actually realistic? And so um, sites will try to show you other people that they think are actually attainable for you. It's quite a different situation, though, when you think about other types of platforms that are using collaborative filtering, like on Amazon, because your purchases don't have to, as you said, they don't have to like you back. So it's a different kind of experience. Yeah, it would be very sad if I got rejected by a product, you know, that's, uh, that'd be very sad. Yeah, it <laughs> would. Just speaking of rejection, some of the information that we have as matchmakers I find to be very helpful and different than online is we will set up a couple on a date and then we get the feedback after. So we know exactly how they felt after the date. We're able to deliver the information to our client and then help our client become a better dater. Where if you're online dating, you may be making the same mistakes over and over and you never know. So you're spinning your wheels dating the same type of person or you, have, you don't get the feedback after. But through matchmaking, you're able to learn about yourself and become a more confident dater. 
how do you evaluate who you should swipe right on or who you should go out on a date one? Are you able to evaluate what you need versus what you want? Or are there categories that are useful predictors for that, both in online dating or in matchmaking? Like, for example, if someone skips a question in online dating, does that even, does that actually tell you something about them that they chose not to answer that? And you know, what are, what are these categories that we should all really be looking at that the data is showing there's some compatibility with? Well, definitely on online, it's just the more open you are, the better. So if you're someone, for example, that's filtering for six feet and above, okay, well, 7% of men in the U.S. are six feet tall and above. So you've just narrowed your pool to that. So the more open you are, the better on height and age. I see a lot of people get filtered out on age. And then what happens is people start lying. 81% of people are lying about something online because if you're 40, you might put your 39 so you don't get filtered out. So it gets complicated because people aren't quite as authentic. So I would say online, really, the more open you are, the better. And then go on dates. It can be a numbers game and get to know people. And you'll probably be surprised by who you're attracted to in person. Let me jump in just because you mentioned something very interesting. You say people can lie. But potentially, these algorithms can help to stop them lying. Can, can they do that? Say, you know, that's not the answer you give in your profile. Therefore, this is rejected. Is that possible? Some platforms will do this. They will reject people if they have some sort of indication that they're not being honest when they're answering the questions on this questionnaire. So they'll ask similar types of questions in different ways. And if you're giving inconsistent responses, then that cues them in that either you're not paying attention, which isn't great, or that you're not being honest and they will simply not let you sign up. But I feel like in general, you probably can lie as much as you want on these things, right? (laughs) I think that's right. (laughs) I definitely hear, and I hear people, they think it's okay. They'll put a certain age and then they'll say, but when I meet them in person, I'm going to tell them the truth. And they're going to meet me and know my personality is amazing. And so it will end up being okay. So people are very open about lying online to get what they're looking for. That's a healthy way to start mm-hmm. off a relationship. <laughs> exactly. But if you want to lie, you may as well lower people's expectation instead of, you know, raise the expectation. Would that be better? Yes, I agree. It would be better, but they don't do that. Put up really <laughs> ugly photos of yourself and then, you know, show up and be a surprise in person. Definitely surprise. <laughs> That doesn't seem to be the way. So what what are the most um, important factors, Talia, like in terms of how people are compatible that you've seen with the data that you've seen over and over? What are these most important factors? So, it, well, first of all, it's an art. It's not a science. So it's different for everyone. But I think it comes down to core values, goals, and timing. So we get to learn a lot of information about them. And then pair them appropriately. I think timing is a big one, you know, whether or not you want marriage and kids in the next year or two or 10 years, and then what your core values are. So it's a lot less about how much money you make and how tall you are in your age and more of those other intangibles. We have been talking about the metric, the what's important really from the data's perspective, right? But I assume that for these online uh, you know, dating firm, these, these companies, they may have some metrics of their own, right? Because they want their business to be successful. Is the metric that for their success, is that necessarily match the interest of the individual daters? Yeah, this is a really interesting question because 
different people have different goals, right? So some people are looking to just date around. They're looking for something casual and other people join online dating platforms because they want a serious relationship. And you would have to think that immediately finding somebody their perfect match isn't the ideal scenario for a lot of platforms because that means they are going to quit using your site and they're gone. So you would think that a better scenario would be that people are being delivered matches that they're interested in. So people who are attractive, they're having fun, they're going on dates, but they're not necessarily quick to settle down. But it's it's an interesting business model because it's one of the few areas where achieving what we would call success for a lot of people means that you're actually going to be losing customers. That's very interesting because that means that if they already know how to achieve the success, they have to almost you know purposely to tune it down a little bit. But are they really doing that, or you know just because the message is not perfect, you don't have you have to. Try to turn down. It's not working great either. Yeah, I'm not sure. And you could also argue that for an online dating platform, success stories also help to recruit new users. So if you are really good at matching people, then you know maybe that is desirable because for every person who leaves, you're going to get someone else who heard the story and wants to sign up. Definitely hear a lot of stories of people going on online dates, and one person's looking for something like serious marriage and kids, and then the other person just wants something casual. So part of the issue is that everybody's on the same platform and you, know, you don't have all of that information before you get on the date. So people are spending an absurd amount of time online dating to achieve their goals. It's 12 hours a week is what the average online dater spends. Wow. That's cr- 12 wow. hours a week. That's incredible. And is that online or, and that doesn't even count the dates? It's messaging back and forth and swiping. Wow. I think Hinge came out with, it said it takes, what was it? For every 500 swipes, you get one message. It's just incredibly time consuming. And I think people are exhausted by the app. So they're not checking in as much. It feels more like a chore. Rather than something super exciting, which is what it probably should be. Bringing into this idea of, you know, maybe waiting for success, there's this statistical probability problem called the secretary problem. And there's actually an article in HDSR about it. It's how to find your perfect prom date. Forgive me for a second because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this example. Fish, like actual swimming fish, tend to reject the first 37% of possible partners, which is what this secretary problem is, is this 37%, no matter what. And then the first possible partner that comes along who's better than all of the other ones that the fish rejected is the partner that this fish chooses. So if we relate that to human nature, then we play the field into our late 20s, and then we choose a partner and settle down. So for example, if you believe you're going to have 10 love partners in the future, you should reject the first four and marry the next love partner that comes along who's better than the first four. And it's this idea of sort of a fine balance between having the patience to wait for the right person and the foresight to cash in before all the good ones are taken. And so this basically means that at some point we make the choice to fall in love and settle down. So is that true that we're not necessarily with the perfect person, we're just with the person, I mean, actually, Talia, what you said of timing. I think that's how we dated pre-apps, where we dated a lot in our 20s, we explored, we made mistakes, and then usually end of 20s, 30s, we picked the person that we saw potential with and settled down. But I don't think that's how people date anymore, and I think it's 
because of the dating apps that people are in constant search of the bigger, better deal. So it's very hard for them to settle down knowing that someone even better is around the corner. Hmm. And so I think that's part of the reason why people are getting married later in life is that they're having a very hard time focusing on one person and really giving it a fair shot. Instead, they're dating multiple people and those people are dating multiple people and those people are dating multiple people. And it's so hard to know where you stand. So it's almost like a grass is always greener or something. (laughs) Exactly. You know, the second there's like a bump in the road, they're moving on to the next person where before we used to spend time to actually work it out. It's one of the biggest benefits of online dating and also one of the biggest drawbacks that you have this really large pool of partners to choose from and you have so many options because while that might seem like a really desirable thing, we also know that people tend to get easily fatigued and they make worse choices when they have too many options available to them. And so it can make it really hard for people to know when to stop. (laughs) So they sign up for online dating and they're having fun with it and they're dating around. And then it can be hard to know when what you've found is actually something that you need to commit to. You want to choose this one person and forego all of these other options that you have. So this is actually really uh, make me think again about how these apps change people's behavior. But this sounds like fundamentally this could encourage people to... Uh, be more choosy and whether this will affect the divorce rate. Is there any studies now being done? See how this availability of the uh, apps is really changing this whole dynamic of the marriage itself? There's actually surprisingly not a lot of research on this topic, but there was one study that came out about 10 years ago that looked at marital outcomes for people who met on the internet. And one of the places where a lot of people are meeting is obviously on online dating platforms. And they found that couples that met online were a little bit more stable in their marriages. They were less likely to get divorced. And they were also a little bit more satisfied in the relationship as well. But this study came out, I believe it was in 2013, which is about the time that we started to see apps like Tinder and Hinge and Bumble. They all came after around that time. And so uh, it doesn't really speak to what might be happening on those apps in particular. You know, another question I have here is, Lisa, in your article, you, you talk about the history of the this dating app and how it's evolved. And then the obvious question is, is, is what's next? What is the next big thing? We're going to see a new kind of app or maybe there's some way of, or maybe it's already happening, like combining app with, you know, matchmaking that kind of get the best of the both world or, or some revolutionary idea. What, what do you guys see? Well, I hope that people go back to dating the way that they used to, you know, maybe actually looking up from your phone when you're out and about and having real conversations with people. I think we've lost that art of communication. You know, obviously matchmaking is becoming more popular. It's essentially outsourcing your love life because people are so exhausted doing it themselves that they're turning to experts to do it for them. So I think matchmaking is only going to become more popular But I really hope that people go back to communicating and meeting at events and through friends because it just is so much easier to swipe than to have a real conversation that I don't think people are actually communicating in the way that they used to. I'll tell you something that's kind of wild. I did an interview study right before COVID hit, and I talked to some people who were about college age about their dating app experiences. And these were people who are now in long-term relationships. So they're either engaged or they're married to somebody that they met online. And some of them had never actually had the experience of approaching somebody for a date in person. All of their relationships 
started through dating apps because some of them started using apps um, you know, around the time they graduated from high school. And so to them, this is now the model of what dating looks like. That definitely gave me some perspective <laughs> hearing some of those stories. If you go to a bar, you see it. They're not talking, they're swiping on their phone. You know, they can see who's around them. That's very interesting. You mentioned the COVID reminds me. Any studies about how the COVID has impacted the world of online dating? Because obviously this has been a complicated a situation and probably online dating, at least these apps make the people still can communicate with each other when they cannot really physically get together. Yeah, the one big change that we've seen in online dating is a shift from text to video because before COVID, online dating was still very much based on exchanging text messages back and forth through the app. It very much felt like we were in the 90s, like we have better technology available for us now. And then with the pandemic, people were locked up inside and they didn't want to go out and meet people in person. And so they shifted to video. A lot of platforms started rolling out video features um, so that they could have dates without actually having to go out and meet people in person. And I think now people have kind of gotten used to having that option where it's like, I don't have to get dressed up and go spend money and take the time to meet someone if it might not actually work out. So I can pre-screen them essentially through a video date before I invest that time and energy into them. So you can have your pajamas on with your makeup on or something. <laughs> At least the pajamas exactly. on. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> exactly. And in matchmaking, we saw a few trends. One, more people were turning to matchmakers. I think they were really focused on a meaningful connection, you know, without all the distractions of parties and travels, they were at home and realized that they actually wanted a partner and love moved to the top of their list. We also saw people become less superficial. So pre-lockdown, they were asking for you know, six feet tall and Ivy League educated and perfect teeth and a great family. And then during lockdown, it changed. Like, who would I want to spend a year at home with? And it became more <laughs> personality driven. But another major trend we saw is pre- lockdown, people were really focused on dating somebody in their city. Like we would have people ask for 10 mile radius. They're not going to cross the 405 or they're not going to go from Jersey to New York City. Now our daters are nationwide because so many people can work remotely that we have engagements, LASF, LA, New York, Philly, Chicago, and it's so much easier to date long distance. So it's really open the pool. I highly suggest for anyone dating, online dating, you know, open up your parameters if you believe you can move. Otherwise, perhaps the other person could move. It's worth seeing if there's someone outside your area. I never even thought about that. I've been finding something similar in my research where people are ending up in long distance relationships because of online dating. So they want to, they're essentially using proximity as a strategy and they're adjusting the search radius to try to cast a wider net. So it's like, okay. I did this distance and I didn't find what I wanted. So now I'm going to expand my distance and see if I go over another city or another state if I find somebody. And it's actually a really significant thing that's happening because one of the best predictors of attraction for a long time was proximity, um, how often you were around somebody. And so now with online dating, we're talking about a lot of people ending up in relationships with people who they would never come into contact with otherwise and who might not live in the same area, so they are starting out long distance. Does that also change datings across countries to, in terms of international relationships? Is that any, because, you know, that certainly makes it fee more feasible as well, right? Absolutely. 
We, we have a couple that are going to get engaged in Australia, LA, like it, where we had clients that were traveling Costa Rica. They were all over because they can travel and still find love. So wow. it does make a difference. We always have one question that we ask at the end, and then we have a fun one because it is Valentine's Day is coming up. For both of you, if you could wave your magic wand and have one data set in the whole world, it could be anything impossible to get any data set in the whole world, what would it be? I have one that I would love. I would, I'm just curious because we see a trend that happens through matchmaking, and I would be curious to see if it's worldwide, and that is that most of our couples end up marrying someone outside of their criteria. So people who are coming to a matchmaker, they're really commitment focused and they're pretty open to the process and they're willing to trust their matchmakers. So I'm curious if that's matchmaking specific or if that's really happening worldwide where people end up marrying someone outside of what they're looking for. So I think for me, I think of OkCupid's data set, and the reason this comes to mind is because I know that at least they used to ask people when they formed a relationship for their partner's usernames, they could go back and compare how they answered questions. That's a really cool data set to have access to because then you also know who this process actually worked out for, and you can look at the, the questions that they answered and see if there are some things they're more likely to align on than others. And some of the apps are also, from what I understand, using um, GPS data to figure out if you've met somebody for a first date, if you are interacting with them in person. That adds a whole other layer to this because you know what people are doing on the app. You know when they exchange phone numbers. You can kind of anticipate if they've met. But um, yeah, that's that's a different kind of data to throw into the mix. Including a creepy aspect of the data. <laughs> it's a little creepy too. <laughs> Interesting, but also a little creepy. Yeah. It's amazing how much these apps actually know about us. So then let me ask that question about, uh, you know, get your advice for our listeners. If you could give people who are trying to find the one this Valentine's Day, what would be that advice? My advice would be it's not going to happen when you least expect it. So you need to be proactive about your love life if it's something that you want. And that means opening your parameters and swiping right online dating, sliding into people's DMs, having conversations in person, meeting a matchmaker, doing all the things in order to accomplish your goal. And I would say for me, it would be to get out in the real world and start actually going on dates with people because I think there's a tendency to just get very selective about the process and you swipe left and right. You're swiping left on people based on things like how tall they are, um, just stuff that just doesn't really matter that much. You know, the things that you should be prioritizing are what it's actually like to interact with somebody. Are they kind? Is this a person that you get along with? Do you find them funny? And that's really hard to tell from a profile. It's something that kind of just requires that you actually meet someone and you interact and go on a date. So spending more time getting to know people and less time just evaluating them by swiping. I think that's a really terrific advice. I think, you know, what you're saying is the uh, as much as all the data science, the AI, everything kind of seems like helping us, at the end of the day, the best part is the, still the human-human contact. It's the time we spend with with each other. It's it's what we learn, you know, from from each other. So uh, I guess the general advice, particularly to all the data scientists, is uh, don't spend too much time with your algorithm, and, and spend spend more time with people. 
Don't spend too much time with artificial intelligence using your real intelligence. Thank you both to both of you. This is fabulous, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy、uh, your advice and insights as much as we have. And I hope that、uh, everyone, whenever you are, whether you're doing online dating or offline dating, happy Valentine's Day. Thank you, Talia. Talia is the founder and president of the Three Day Rule Matchmaking. You can find them on Instagram at the Three Day Rule. And also, Liesel, thank you so much. Liesel is an assistant professor in the Hugh Downs School of Communication. You can find her article "Finding Love on a First Data: Matching Algorithms in Online Dating" at the HDSR website. Thank you all for listening, and we wish you a lot of love and a very happy Valentine's Day. <laughs>